I next met with Dr. Kim Blackwell, and to begin, we discussed new developments in management of patients with R2-positive disease. Any discussion about these agents starts with our old friend trastuzumab. Trastuzumab, as pretty much everyone knows, is a monoclonal antibody. It binds to the HER2 receptor, and its main mechanism action is actually felt to be the stimulation of the immune system against HER2 overexpressing breast cancer cells. Our new friend, pertuzumab, which is demonstrated to improve survival in the metastatic setting, also is a monoclonal antibody, binds to HER2, but at a different binding site, and it basically prevents HER2 from dimerizing with the other HER family members, hence really restricting downstream signaling in HER2-driven breast cancer cells. Pertuzumab basically has all the absence of side effects you would expect from a monoclonal antibody. Given once every three weeks, no hair loss, no nausea, no vomiting. There have been reported allergic reactions, but they amount to about less than 1% of all patients receiving the antibody because it is humanized. And the only other real side effect that we see with bertuzumab, and it's almost certainly due to the fact that it interferes with HER1 or EGFR signaling, is we do see a truncal kind of acneiform rash that is usually puzzling. If you don't know it's from the pertuzumab, people are thinking they're getting body acne or they've been exposed to poison ivy or their sunburn where the sun doesn't shine. But the reality is, is it's probably due to the pertuzumab's effect on HER1 or EGFR. So we now know that adding pertuzumab to first-line treatment of metastatic disease with trastuzumab and ataxane dramatically improves survival, and now this combination has been tested and approved for neoadjuvant therapy. There are studies that have demonstrated that adding the pertuzumab to trastuzumab prior to surgery significantly increase the complete pathologic response, meaning no cancer left in the breast. And for many of the studies, no cancer left in the axilla. So at least in my practice, and I think it's pretty standard of care over the past year, pertuzumab has been approved in the neoadjuvant setting in combination with trastuzumab and ataxane as being better than trastuzumab alone. And certainly when neoadjuvant therapies being used nowadays, both by investigators as well as docs in practice. They're using this combination. But the question is, who should this be used on and who should they be evaluating? Yeah, so I'll make it real easy on the listener because knowing the aggressiveness of HER2-driven breast cancer, so that's the same thing as HER2-positive, however your pathologist helps you define it, knowing how aggressive that is, and also knowing how efficacious both pertuzumab and trastuzumab are. With very few exceptions, patients facing HER2-positive breast cancer are going to need chemotherapy, they're going to need trastuzumab, they're going to need pertuzumab. And unless there's something that I can't think of off the top of my head, patients should be receiving these agents prior to their definitive surgery. And it's not that easy to give it post-op. I mean, you can give chemotherapy and trastuzumab, that's a standard, but whether, I mean, it's not approved by the FDA, but I guess there's some debate about whether it can be done. Well, it's easy on the patient to give the pertuzumab, but these are expensive drugs. And again, without a formal approval of pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting and a FDA approval in the preoperative or neoadjuvant setting, 
it certainly lessens one of the stressors that both my patients and I have, which is this drug added to trastuzumab makes trastuzumab and chemo work better. It would be great to get it approved and make it available to our patients. And the easiest way to do that is to offer it in the neoadjuvant setting. Can you talk a little bit about what TDM1 is, how it's being used, and why it's being looked at in this trial? Sure. So TDM1 is a first-in-class way of treating HER2-positive breast cancer. It is known as an antibody drug conjugate. It has three components, chemotherapy, which in this case is a derivative of metanzine, which is a microtubule divider inhibitor. The T and TDM1 is our old friend trastuzumab, and then there's a stable linker that once the TDM1 is internalized, the chemotherapy is released, binding to the microtubule and causing hopefully cell death when the cells go to divide. The trastuzumab kind of serves as a carrier pigeon for the chemotherapy in this case, and that you have to have about 100,000 copies of the receptor on the cell surface in order for the antibody drug conjugate to actually be taken up, internalized, and then degraded. There's very few, if any, normal cells in the human body that have that much HER2 receptor. So it's a very specialized or targeted agent specifically to deliver chemotherapy to HER2 overexpressing breast cancer cells. And Probably the biggest advantage to TDM1 is because of that very select targeting delivery system, patients don't lose their hair from the chemotherapy, which they would have had the chemotherapy not been linked to the trastuzumab. And there is no neutropenia. There's none of the classic chemotherapy side effects with TDM1. So it makes it an ideal drug to give long-term in the adjuvant setting because most of the standard chemo we give has so much dose-limiting side effects that even if it's working, we have to stop after six cycles because patients just don't tolerate it that much longer. So if TDM1 is shown to be more effective in the Catherine study, that would make a pretty large impact because this is a therapy that people can get you know, for a year with really no side effects. I guess we should point out, too, that it is now being looked at in the adjuvant setting. You're talking about sort of the post-neoadjuvant setting, but there had been a trial that was looking at paclitaxel with trastuzumab in lower-risk patients and had really great results, and now that's being paired just to TDM1 alone. Correct. Any comments about that study and that strategy? Well, it's interesting because it's comparing what I would call a regimen that's on the lighter side, 12 weeks of paclitaxel and trastuzumab for a year versus a year of TDM1. My guess is that the TDM1 is going to be better tolerated, but the bigger question from that study, which again is primarily node-negative breast cancer that's HER2-positive or HER2-driven, is do you get a higher amount of efficacy from TDM1 than you do with the standard chemo trastuzumab? And that that really remains to be seen. I guess the initial study only had one arm. It looked at the taxane with trastuzumab. Again, as you say, no negative patients. And they had almost no recurrences. So it's hard to imagine how much better TDM1 might be. Well, that's, you know, if you ask me, is the study going to show a huge difference or not, I would argue that both of those treatments, both containing trastuzumab, because TDM1 retains the free circulating trastuzumab levels as if you were to give just trastuzumab alone, it's hard to imagine that that study's going to show a huge difference in favor of one regimen over the other, mainly because the incidence or the event rate is going to be so small in both arms. 
So I asked you to bring in a case that was a new patient from your practice in the past week. Let's hear about the patient you picked. Well, I actually will describe a case that I just saw yesterday. Very interesting, 51-year-old engineer who lives about 10 miles from Durham, who in 2005 had DCIS of the right breast and underwent a lumpectomy followed by radiation. She did okay until 2008 when she had an annual mammogram and the left breast was diagnosed with DCIS based on new calcifications on a mammogram. And in 2008, she underwent bilateral mastectomies with immediate expander reconstruction followed by permanent implants. She received a year of tamoxifen, but didn't tolerate it very well and stopped it in early 2010. Has not received genetic testing even when I saw her yesterday. So she, about a month ago, felt a small mass on the medial border of her mastectomy scar. And she kind of followed it for a while. She actually thought maybe it was a retained stitch or some type of incisional cyst. She had a history of keloids from a cyst removed on her back, so she thought maybe it was a keloid developing. But after following this for about two months, and now about a month ago, she went and saw her surgeon who did a FNA of it, and she was diagnosed with a grade one mucinous carcinoma at the site of her mastectomy scar. So she had an excision of this area and was diagnosed with grade one, 1.5 centimeter mucinous carcinoma, ER strongly, strongly positive, 99%, PR 99%, and HER2 stone cold zero. So just to clarify, the thinking was this is a new primary? Correct, in residual breast tissue. Hmm, so different histology. Yeah, I just think it's an interesting case of a woman who basically was told in 2009, if you have mastectomies, you're done with you know, a history of bilateral DCIS. And you can imagine the stress that she must feel having been told now six years ago that she was done with breast problems and then being diagnosed with what is a T1C hormonally sensitive breast cancer. She actually went on about two weeks ago to have a sentinel node dissection because her axilla had never been explored from her DCIS in 2005, and two lymph nodes were removed, neither one of which had cancer. She had staging studies, mainly because I'm a stager, and she was in a state of, you know, how do we know it's not anywhere else? And so a CT scan and a bone scan were negative for metastatic disease. So I met her yesterday for the first time, and her question really was, does she need chemotherapy and what should she do with endocrine therapy? And this was very educated. She had seen quite a few people. And the first decision in her case was, does she need chemotherapy or not? Now, it's an interesting case because we know from the CLOR study that chemotherapy after a local regional recurrence actually improves progression-free and overall survival, mainly in triple negative breast cancer. And so in thinking through the chemotherapy issues, I really had to think through what you just asked me, which was, is this a new primary breast cancer, which I would treat and not necessarily extrapolate the calor study results to, or was this a recurrence in her breast, her radiated breast from 2005 of invasive ductal carcinoma? So was this an IDC after a history of DCIS? Given the time frame, I made a decision that it was more likely to be a new primary diagnosis in residual breast tissue. 
And so for that reason, I felt comfortable not extrapolating the caloric data and mandating chemotherapy after a local regional recurrence. Then the second question really is, how do you optimize this? She's still premenopausal, having regular periods. How do you optimize this patient's adjuvant endocrine therapy? And in going through the numbers with her, I basically said, I think you have about a 12% five-year risk for recurrence if you do nothing. And it probably is cut roughly in half from 12% to 6% if you take five years of tamoxifen. I tend to use a five-year time point. And the question then becomes, is there anything above and beyond tamoxifen that might offer this woman further reduction in the risk for recurrence? And so we had a discussion about ovarian suppression and the use of an aromatase inhibitor. And given her prior intolerance to tamoxifen, although I have to say it was fairly nebulous why she didn't tolerate the tamoxifen, she in her own mind was very interested in exploring other options. And I quoted her approximately a reduction from about a 6% to about 4.5% risk, five-year risk of recurrence if she employed an aromatase inhibitor and ovarian suppression. And so that's ultimately what she decided to do, knowing that there wasn't a huge difference in recurrence rate between taking tamoxifen versus an aromatase inhibitor and ovarian suppression. What's your experience with quality of life in these premenopausal women who have ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor? Well, it clearly makes an impact on quality of life to become old overnight. That's how I describe it to patients. I think it is sometimes very hard to tease out what the effects of just shutting down the ovaries are on both quality of life and physical symptoms and what the impact of adding the aromatase inhibitor on top of that is. In fact, I saw a woman yesterday who was convinced that the Lupron was causing her joint pains. And then as soon as she got her ovaries out, her joint pains dissipated, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that was kind of what her mindset was. I mean, from a pure biologic standpoint, it should make no difference. She was getting a monthly injection and was clearly ovarian suppressed. So what I tend to do in my practice, and this is a very practical thing, is I tend to shut the ovaries down first, let the patient feel what that's like, or in the patient who's received chemo, they kind of already know what it's like because their menses usually cease while they're on chemotherapy. And then I actually see them back at two to three months to start the aromatase inhibitor. Any data from an efficacy standpoint that that's any better, worse, or the same as starting them both together, there is none. But for the patient who has a fairly sizable amount of anxiety about what the possible side effects are, which I do think impacts compliance, that's well documented, I tend to start the agents in a sequential fashion so that we can work with the patient to hopefully lessen the impact on their quality of life. Now, do you utilize a bisphosphonate in this situation or in any adjuvant situation? Well, I still believe that ABCSG12, which was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, demonstrating that six infusions of zoledronic acid over 36 months lessen the chance of breast cancer coming back, statistically significantly so, is important data. And I'm not quite certain why we haven't continued to really think about the use of zoledronic acid. In my practice, if you're going to shut a young woman's ovaries down, there is going to be bone loss. There is. And so both from a bone protective effect of using zoledronic acid in the adjuvant setting and maybe an anti-cancer effect, six infusions over three years, most patients are willing to accept that. 
I guess we should point out, though, that that trial was in premenopausal women getting ovarian suppression. And there also is data out there. There was a meta-analysis presented on the entire population as it relates to bisphosphonates and the question or thought that maybe there are fewer recurrences in postmenopausal women who get bisphosphonates. Sure. So I'm currently thinking a lot about this because I'm actually writing a paper on it. But most of the bisphosphonates used for a short period during the time period when we see the bone loss associated with aromatase inhibitor, which is really the first two years, it's that acute drop in estrogen that contributes heavily on the upfront bone loss, seems like a very reasonable approach when you think of all of the other approaches we have to prevent bone loss in non-breast cancer survivors. So getting back to this lady, I've got to say I kind of was expecting you to say something that I didn't hear you say, and I think I'm going to guess why, but you brought up the question of chemotherapy and said that because you thought this was a new primary and not a recurrence calor situation, that you wouldn't use chemo. But what about just adjuvant chemotherapy in this situation, and specifically the question of an oncotype? I realize it's a mucinous cancer. Did you get an oncotype? And if you didn't, is it because of that? I didn't get an oncotype. And this is a case that I had heard about through the grapevine for a couple weeks before I actually got the opportunity to see the patient. So I actually had an opportunity to think about this and discuss it with some of my colleagues before I actually made my recommendations. We did review her 1.5 centimeter mucinous, extremely low grade, just chock full of estrogen receptor. And my experience has been that she had already been waiting for several weeks I don't know this number off the top of my head, but I know in my experience, sending an oncotype on mucinous, sometimes it's difficult to get adequate tissue to perform the assay in these mucinous cancers. And I honestly, even if it had come back at like, well, maybe if the oncotype recurrence score had come back at 25, I guess I would have had a second thought about it. But I think it's- It could come back at 40. It could, I'm trying to remember. I've seen data. I think there's a poster sometime that looked at all the unusual subtypes. I think you're correct. And I think that they found like high. The spectrum was all over. A lot of things that you wouldn't think they would find high. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I order an oncotype and close to 99% of my ER positive N0, N1 breast cancer patients. HER2 negative, of course. HER2 new negative. But in this case given how low grade it is, and given that it was strongly estrogen receptor positive, I thought I found a, what I thought was a middle ground, which was not just giving her tamoxifen, not treating her with chemotherapy, but really offering her what I would consider very aggressive endocrine management. I call that low recurrence score treatment. Yeah, basically, just, yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> but really, you know, you know they have more estrogen receptors. See, I should never but... present a case that I just saw yesterday to you because you'll have something <laughs> to say all the time. Uh, let me see. Oh, I was going to ask that you. That is you a said... good case, though, actually. No, it's a great some... case. It's really I'm interesting. I'd be very anxious to see what her genetic testing results came back. I actually sent her for a PET CT. I didn't want to get that because that's way outside the standards of any guidelines in this issue. And she actually looks like she's going to have a thyroid cancer on top of everything. So the PET scan, I mean, for people who don't believe in PET scans, i.e. every guideline for no negative breast cancer, and these young women with weird cancer histories, like, you know, I had thyroid cancer, and now I have breast cancer, I had breast cancer. 
I'm amazed at how many problems I pick up that are meaningful problems like thyroid cancer on a PET scan. Yeah, on the same program, the surgeon Terry King actually presented a case, or I've been thinking about it all day, of a patient with, you know, two centimeter lesions. Somehow the somebody ordered a PET scan and she had a bone met. I mean, it was an asymptomatic, you know, I think. Oh, I have those all met. the time. Bone scan, you know, nothing, maybe some arthritis. And I do a PET CT as a staging study and hormone sensitive breast cancer and there's pelvic mets that would have clearly been missed. And, you know, maybe it's okay to not know that they're there for five to 10 years, because usually endocrine therapy works, but, you know, we're treating her fairly aggressively and we're doing radiosurgery to the pelvic met. And there's an ongoing national trial looking at this oligometastatic disease, but if you don't know it's there, then it's very hard to treat it. Absolutely. And it's also ironic, I was thinking about it, because, you know, she did that presentation at ASCO of mm -hmm. using Ocotype and metastatic disease. And she had presented this case, which was a classic two centimeter, no negative, ear positive, or two negative, who would have gotten an Ocotype. Mm -hmm. And then you find this bone met, and then they forget all about that. But I think to myself, well, biologically, wouldn't you want to know whether it was one of these unusual tumors that's, you know, more chemo sensitive? Sure. You think we're ever going to get there? I don't know if the oncotype will get us there, but I think some of the larger endpoint diagnostics probably will. One final question. You said that you order oncotype on patients with ER positive or two negative disease. What about those with node positive disease? So I ordered an N1 disease, and that's because I think the oncotype from Kathy Albane's study has demonstrated to me, and you can ask the question two ways. Basically, the recurrence score tells me how much I can rely on endocrine therapy to prevent the breast cancer from coming back, or the converse of that, or the same question, but turned around a little bit, is how much does chemotherapy help patients, which is typically the more common way of thinking about the oncotype. So if I get a low recurrence score in N1 disease, in a, especially a premenopausal woman, where we have data that ovarian suppression is the same as at least old-fashioned CMF chemotherapy, I will use that information in designing a treatment strategy. So this is where I bring in my reverse HER2-neoadjuvant NCCN thing, where they go, well, why don't you do the same thing if the patient comes after surgery? This is where I go, well, why don't you do the same thing pre-op in ER-positive HER2-negative? All right. You know, you've got a locally advanced ER positive HER2 negative tumor. You're about to give him chemo. I mean, why wouldn't you check the oncotype? And if it's low, maybe rethink it. But I don't think anybody does that, do they? Well, the one time that the oncotype does help in the preoperative is when the surgeon's trying to get me to give him chemo to shrink the thing. And it's strongly ER positive, strongly PR positive. And I'm not going to melt that tumor away with chemo. And then the question really is, does the patient really need to experience chemotherapy at all? And although people don't like it because it slows the process up, I'll order an oncotype off the diagnostic biopsy because I will not give chemotherapy to an ER-positive patient in the neoadjuvant setting under the auspices that I'm going to melt that cancer away. It just doesn't happen with hormonally-driven tumors. Have you ever found in that situation a patient with a high recurrence score who had a great response? Absolutely. So Harry Bear was going to, I think he presented some data about right, it, right. limited, single arm, I think less than mm -hmm. 100 patients. And they're studying but, it too. Yeah. I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I don't have data to prove that an oncotype will correlate with a good response to neoadjuvant therapy, 
But the oncotype is useful in the neoadjuvant setting because just to give chemo when the patient may not have gotten it in the adjuvant setting, and again, for strongly hormonally driven breast cancers, these are just the tumors that if you need to see a tumor shrink by 50% to do a lumpectomy, I'm always a little hesitant in these ER positive. They just don't melt away.